Well, one of the funniest things in Foley recording was when um, this guy was doing Foley for a project I was working on. And the first couple cuts of Foley, I hear this, this, you know, this kind of scraping. And then the next cut, there's no scraping at all. And I hear this, hello, this is Peter Steinbach. This is take number four of, you know, the project name. And I'm not wearing any pants, Dave. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. Sending your music to be mastered can be scary, but sending your music to a total stranger for mastering can be really scary. Chris Graham is a billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer with thousands of credits and knows how to make your record sound fantastic. But more importantly, he understands that there is one person that really knows what a great record sounds like, and that's you, rock stars. So if you're thinking about hiring professional mastering, but not sure if it's right for you, go to chrisgrammastering.com and get a free sample mastering of your song. Go find out just how great your record can sound at chrisgrammastering.com. Just click the link included in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lidshaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is David Earle, a.k.a. SF Logic Ninja, a music composer, producer, and educator for DavidEarlProductions.com. He is also a member of the Producers and Engineers branch of Neris AES and is a voting member of Neris. He's an award-winning composer who has contributed to Gang, Clio, and Emmy-winning works. I actually discovered David many years ago on YouTube. I've been a Pro Tools user for many years, but wanted to learn how to use Logic. And so, searching around on YouTube, one day I stumbled on David's amazing channel, SF Logic Ninja, where he shares his teaching and insights into the Logic and Logic Pro X worlds. He also creates tons of content now for askaudio.com and has taught at Pyramind as well. David knows a ton about using Logic from the early days of the app right to present Logic Pro X. He's a great teacher and a lot of fun to learn from, a great resource for knowledge on how to use Logic Pro. In fact, I'll include links to many of his awesome videos in the show notes, so stay tuned for that. I'm going to create a link for you guys to go get a quality collection of many of his best videos. David has been composing music for hire for over 20 years with a focus on original music for games, film, and television. His clients include Amazon, Sega, Microsoft, eBay, and many others. You can hear his music on such titles as Iron Man 2, the video game by Sega, Halo, Waypoint, The Return by 343, Happy Auction Theater, and many more. And David also enjoys producing artists such as Lila Rose, Emily Afton, Artemis. This one's spelled like dream, but it's Drea M. How do you pronounce that one? <laughs> yeah, it's Drea M. Drea M. All right, cool. Anyway, actually, it was on like second read that I was like, wait a minute, that spells dream. <laughs> <laughs> 
and many others. His style has been labeled cinematic indie pop. He's also a contributor to Judas Priestess and Dream Theater. That's cool as shit, dude. Nicely done. (laughs) His latest fun project was composing original music for the Adult Swim Double Fine production called Headlander, now available on vinyl through IM8-bit. I'm beyond psyched to have someone who I consider to be YouTube royalty on the podcast today. Please welcome oh. David Earl, aka SF Logic Ninja, to Recording Studio Rockstars. David, or shall I call you Ninja? Are you ready to rock? You know, I don't care what you call me. That's, That's right. Right. That's right. Oh, you know what, man? I'm gonna. Um, if I do it, Sean, we're gonna inject a little bit, a little taste of uh, the SF Logic Ninja theme song right here, just as a reminder for those of you who have seen his work before. David, I've done a long-winded introduction for you, but fill in some of the gaps and tell us who you are. How'd you get into this stuff and what are you doing now with your music? Well, essentially, I'm one of the the newer generation of all singing, all dancing composer, producer, engineer types. You know, like we came after the industry types who were very specialized. I kind of came of age in the production world in the 90s and it was all through mentorship. I had a very... I had a very weird introduction into the industry in that it started with me working at a music store and I was like repairing keyboards and having to learn about gear because I was supposed to sell it. And back in the days in the early 90s, these manufacturers had enough money that they'd fly you out and they'd be like, so here's how our mixer works. And oh, actually, right. Like specialized training. Right. So they're like, so in order for you to be able to sell this, we need you to be a mixing engineer. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm up at Mackie, you know, they're showing me stuff. They took, Emu flew me out to learn sampling at their sampler school that they had in 1994. Like, wow. so it was pretty crazy. And eMagic, and I hated computers. Like, I just hated using computers, like, with a passion. And then this little company called eMagic up in Grass Valley, they uh, sent some people down to me because they had heard that I was pretty good, you know, even though I hated computers, I was pretty good with them. Like I, pre- I was pretty good with these DAWs and I'd worked in Pro Tools when it was four tracks and four tracks was awesome. Yeah. You know, you use that with Sample Cell and you were rolling, but I really hated using that stuff. And then these guys came down from eMagic and they showed me Logic. And what I loved about it was that it was the first time that the software could work as fast as I could work. Like you didn't have to stop and do something and then, you know, roll for a while and stop and do something again it just kind of kept rolling. And I was really into that. And I wrote a piece like on the spot when they were showing it. And I, that was the start of my love affair with Logic in 1995. I think it was version five back then. (laughs) And now this was back when Logic was nothing but a MIDI sequencer, right? Right. So of course I still had to do, I still had to use Pro Tools, right? I mean, like you didn't have a choice back then. Yeah. Then around 1998, they started giving audio capability to Logic, but it was still kind of a yeah, well, it wasn't great, you know. <laughs> so you'd have to marry these two systems together, the DAE. You'd have to marry DAE and Logic together. And Logic was basically a front end for Pro Tools, like a, a GUI for Pro Tools. And Also, I, bef- before you even get into that, I remember back when Pro Tools did the audio and Logic did the MIDI. And we, I had this amazing aha moment in the studio once when I saw somebody who had both apps open at the same time and they were synced up and it was like, Logic was running the, the, all the external keyboards, which were recording into Pro Tools, and we couldn't believe yep. it, you know? Via OMS. That's right. 
<laughs> you know, had to love OMS. For people who don't know, that's the open music system from Opcode. That's now integrated into the audio music system in the Mac. That's There's right. still some vestiges of OMS in there, like the IAC bus and things like that, like inter-applications bus that allows you to send information between applications, which is pretty interesting that that stuff still exists. But yeah. anyway, to make a long story short, like or longer, I ended up doing some ads for free for this composer who hired me on to do composition. And that's really where my composing world started because he had me doing everything from classical to rock to jazz. And then at the same time, I was performing live. And then I was also doing electronic music remixes. And, uh, you know, that the late 90s through the mid 2000s were, were my, you know, the, the total and complete insanity days. And now I'm just down to, you know, being insane, not completely insane, but just yeah. insane. But you still have insane hair, right? Oh, always, man. Always. You're, you're yeah. pretty famous for your hair. Well, I'm lucky, you know? I mean, imagine what would have happened if like around 35, like all of a sudden it just fell out. I, mean, um, I don't think I have to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, especially with this, like, it's like flock of seagulls, you know, it's like when you're known for your hair, it's like, I kind of had this terrifying, like moment of like, you know, if this all falls out, I'm going to really hurt my brand. Actually, I'm just kidding. I didn't think about that at all. But the biggest thing about my hair was just that I call it project hair because there's no time. Like I don't have time to go get a haircut or anything like that. And <laughs> You know, so what I used to do is I used to cut it really short and spiky. You know, I like wanted to be in a 90s boy band or something. And then I was on a music video shoot and this guy, Brooke Hall, he was the makeup guy, the hair and makeup guy. And he looked at my hair and my hair was kind of long and unkempt. And he looked at it and he said, you should just go with that. And then just shook it all up and made it huge. And I was like, huge hair, curly, <laughs> interesting. And then I just went with it. And that's like right when I started the channel is when I started doing that. And it's just funny because like I kind of like thinking that I'm like the Miyamoto Musashi of logic. Like I'm this like weird, you know, samurai who doesn't care about, you know, fashion or smelling good, but really knows his craft. I do smell good. I do shower and I have basic hygiene. So, <laughs> Well, that's one of the beauties of, you know, doing YouTube videos and podcast interviews is, um, you know, I haven't taken a shower since last night and you don't have to know it. Except that yeah. I just divulged it. Oops. So. So where are you wearing? What are you wearing right now? Um, well, you know, it's funny you ask that. I try to keep that a secret, but it gets so hot in my control room that I take my shirt off so I can keep the air conditioning off while I do an interview. Oh, baby, that's awesome. <laughs> I think that a lot of listeners can probably relate to that. You know, it's the it's part of the home studio world, right? Is you're like, how oh, am yeah. I going to be comfortable in this space? Yeah, but I prefer the pants off rather than the rather than the shirt. I. I I just wear shorts all the time anyway, but I did work with a guy who insisted on doing all his voiceovers in his underwear and it was, you know, didn't well, bother me, but he had to warn my interns sometimes. Well, one of the funniest things in Foley recording was when um, uh, I had this guy who was doing Foley for a project I was working on. And the the first couple cuts of Foley, I hear this, this you know, this kind of scraping. And then the next cut, there's no scraping at all. And I hear this, hello, this is Peter Steinbach. This is take number four of you know, the project name. And I'm not wearing any pants, Dave. And then he starts doing the, you know, the Foley. And of course it all sounds great because he realized his pants were, you know, rubbing together. Totally. Wow. That is one place where clothes could be a real imposition in the studio. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I bet there's like a whole, like, there's gotta be a gear sluts, like, you know, page devoted to like what to wear while you're doing Foley. 
Um, and we were talking about this beforehand, and I know that location recording may not be as common a thing for you, but um, one of the questions I like to ask is to share a failure moment in the studio. Can you tell us this story again about some of the earliest location recordings you were asked to do? Oh, my God. So first of all, okay, I'm going to go do location recording. How hard can it be? And, you know, with all of the resources that we have available to us, even, you know, I think it was like seven years ago or something that I did it. But we have all these resources where you can kind of educate yourself. And I didn't really educate myself enough. I went out to this place with a, how the hell was I going to record it? Oh, yeah, I I had this, um, I think it was a Tascam recorder. I borrowed a boom. I had some labs, but the labs were wired. They weren't wireless which was the first pain in the ass. The second thing was getting power to those labs, like was draining my batteries like really quickly. Like all of these things, these little things that anybody who does location sound would know what to do. But the the odds were all stacked against me because this location recording, my first location recording was at a wind farm. <laughs> and wind farms are known for their wind, right? Right. And I mean, I had the Rycote blimp. I had the dead cat on it. I did the whole thing to 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 do what I could to get the wind out. But oh my God, I mean, you know, preparation is just so important. I learned a tremendous bit there, but the directors, like we were out there like all day long and getting B-roll and all this stuff. And I just remember like we're sitting at the dinner table and one of the directors looks at me and she's just like, Dave, you got to step up more. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you just got to, like, you can't complain. You just need to, you just need to do it. And um, we go to a bowling alley, right? And, and so I'm sitting there and I'm going, I'm going to get an interview at a bowling alley while people are bowling. Now, I had thought that the directors had talked to the people who were bowling, right? I thought that they had built a relationship with this alley and, and that these people were there and we knew who they were. Because that's kind of how things were up to this point. So we're interviewing this woman and these balls are slamming against the wood as they go tearing down the lane <laughs> to knock down the pins, which, as you can imagine, to a sound guy who's not slept in three days, you just want to murder somebody. So I go over and I start talking to these guys. I'm like, hey, when you bowl, could you let go of the ball like closer to the ground? And they're looking at me. Now, this is in Bernie. Do you know where Redding is? No. Are we, are we over in England or something? Or where are we? No, we're in California, but North California, like right at the border, North California, red state, totally like, you know, like. They don't like just, guys with ninja hair? Yeah. Uh, you just say that like the Bay, the Bay Area intellectuals wouldn't really be, you know, welcome there so much. Right, right. I mean, most of them are really nice people, but these were young guys who were really bored and wanted to start some stuff. And like, I go over there and I'm showing them how to throw their balls down the lane. And then the director comes and grabs me terrified and says, what the hell are you doing? And I said, well, I mean, oh, you don't know these people. These are just people. And so then we're getting, we're getting like, you know, <laughs> Sean, the guy who was, who was the DP, goes out there and he's shooting the balls coming down the lane. And I swear to God, these guys are aiming for me. <laughs> like the balls are just coming straight at me. And, you know, I'm lucky that I'm a 6'3 dude who, like, is not a you know, easy target. Because when we got out of there, those guys were definitely like, hmm. <laughs> Ready to uh, yeah. 
show you what a knuckle sandwich looks like. Oh, yeah. And um, I was just like, I'm too tired for this. Well, so that's kind of a trip. And I know that's not exactly in the studio, but it, it's still, uh, you know, recording and the challenges and dealing with people. Well, was there kind of an aha moment or a takeaway for you? That, did that turn into a learning experience? Expansion. <laughs> Expansion. You expanded your attitude or you expanded yes. the audio? Uh, I, I, using, using the tools that I used to fix that audio was learning how to use those to, to take care of things was really pretty amazing. Learning about when I, when I started talking to people after the fact, all of a sudden, all of the like location recording guys like came out of the woodwork and were talking to me about all of these techniques and tips and tricks to use to do this stuff. And it was pretty awesome to meet that community. And, um, <laughs> and I learned a lot about, you know, recording in these harsh environments and how to mitigate some of the, uh, the craziness that can happen when you're in these these completely wild settings where you do not know what's going to happen. Um, one other fun screw up, since we're talking about failures, this is one sure. of my, when I started off as a composer, we were recording orchestras, you know, at Fantasy. I mean, it was pretty awesome. We'd have the San Francisco Symphony would come over and record an ad because that's what budgets were like in the 90s, right? Yeah. And it was one of my first, one of the first ads that I did that like, I did the whole thing, soup to nuts, wrote the whole piece, exported the MIDI so that they could open it in Sibelius and then write out the score for the part, for the players and all this stuff. And I'm at home and they're at the studio recording and I get a phone call. And the guy who I work for says, uh, so David, did you mean to put a double stop on the flute? And what that means is that I had somehow written that the flute was supposed to play two notes at once which is really hard for a flute to do, even, <laughs> even a really good classically trained flute, uh, flautist, uh, is not going to be able to do that very well. So I'd realized that I'd exported my MIDI incorrectly and the amount of money that got spent on that screw up. Oh my God. Astronomical in those days. So I never did it again. And I learned a hell of a lot about prepping stems and scores and things like that. Now, were you composing as well, or were you doing this for a composer at the time? I, I composed that piece. That was one of the, you know, that was one of the classical pieces that I composed for this guy. And afterwards, I would go and supervise some of the recordings and some of the, you know, production aspects of it as well. Right, and make sure that it translated the way you meant for it to. So composition and music was sort of where you started. You know, you were messing with doing location recording for film and stuff. But ultimately, you sort of brought it back into the studio. Talk to us about composing. And, you know, I know you're, you're doing a lot of composition for games and things like that. How did you transition into that world? And like, what was, what was the thing? I mean, oh, I got I to gotta share this with you. So I finally, in prepping for this, realized what SF Logic Ninja is. You're in San Francisco. Right. I'm, yeah, right next door, as a matter of fact. I never yeah. realized that's what SF stu stood for. I was just like, yeah, that's people cool. Often, people often said, like, why do you call it Logic Ninja? Why don't you just call it Logic Ninja? And I'm like, you know what's funny? Is that name was totally a, like, I just had a cup of coffee in the afternoon. I'm like, what's this YouTube thing? I don't know. I'll call myself SF Logic Ninja. Okay, cool. It was a total throwaway. And it's just so funny now because, like, I use it as a handle for all kinds of stuff. And the people who don't know what SF Logic Ninja is go, Hey, Sfla, Sfla. I mean, just call me Dave. Slogic. Ninja. Slog? Slog it? Slogic? Well, it's yeah. like, it's, it's before, it's after blogs and before vlogs, there were slogs, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, so talk about gaming and like, you know, have you always been like a, a fanatic of video games? You know, you're obviously kind of in the gaming world there on the West Coast, sort of yeah. near Silicon I mean, Valley and all that stuff. Well, it's funny because growing up, I mean, my first game system was an Atari 2600, you know, like 1983 playing oh, video oh, games. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was a fanatic about that thing. And then my buddy across the street, of course, gets an Intellivision, and now he's the hot crap on the block, you know, and he's just like, yeah, got an Intellivision. Come on, man. Yar's Revenge? Oh, dude, Yar's Revenge. Superman? Wasn't there a secret? I remember there was some tricky thing you could do with Superman. Well, I'll never forget Superman because I had chicken pox when I played that game. <laughs> <laughs> well, was chicken pox a good game, too? <laughs> it wasn't fun. Um, and then, oh, E.T., right? And there was that great documentary now about where they had Atari had oh, buried cool. all the E.T. games, and then they had to unearth them from the dumps out in Arizona or something like that. Horrifically bad game. And then there, there was, of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was also... Ooh, that was a good pitfall was one of my faves. Dude, that's, I mean, anything Activision put out, you saw that they actually cared. You know, yeah. it wasn't just like a money grab. And that's the problem with the 2600 is that there was no <laughs> problem with the no bar entry. Like anybody could write for it. And um, I love you. I love how you're talking about it as if it's like a present day issue still. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I did this course that was all on, you know, music for video games. And I, of course, go back and I go through all the history of the of the systems and like their audio capabilities and all this stuff. And you just can't talk about that stuff without going into this going into the politics a little bit is just so fascinating. Well, I know you're short on time, so I don't want to stall you, but keep bringing us through a little bit of the history and bring us up to where you're at now with uh, composing for games. Sure. Well, games are always something I did and it, I was passionate about, but I never in a million years thought about it being a career. And then when I was working, um, one of my friends who's a sound designer, he's the guy who introduced me to my mentor, my com composition mentor that, you know, ran me through that ringer. And he's like, hey, man, I'm starting to do games. And I'm like, oh, cool. So we started doing these little casual PC games for a company called Imagine Engine around 1999. And that's when I really started to learn about adaptive audio and game states and creating scores that can change based on the game state and all that jazz. And that was like, you know, started moving up from casuals into like, you know, indie titles. And then when I came on at Pyramind, my buddy moved to San Diego and was working at Sony and he made friends with a guy who was working at Sega. And then he said, you got to, you got to hire my buddy because he's really good. And this guy tried us out and he's like, sure. And we did Iron Man too. And that's when, that's when I really got deep into FMOD and WISE, which are both middleware, a system that allows you to take your music and sort of play it in the game. It's the middleware. It's sort of the DAW of games. Like you make all your music and stuff in Logic or Pro Tools or whatever it is. And you take that audio and you put it into the system and the system has hooks into the game and rules that allow you to change the music in really compelling and interesting ways. And wow. that's when Iron Man 2 and, and Microsoft with the Halo stuff and the, um, you know, we even worked with LucasArts and folks like that. And and then I was like, I was all in at that point because it's like having this additional arranging tool when you're doing music and the music is just so alive and like changeable and how it reacts to the game. It, you know, excited all the parts of me that loves doing music to picture, you know, because I did films and stuff. But yeah. 
with games, like the, the world just opens up even more and the storytelling is just, it's really interesting. So wow. that I left Pyramind around 2010 and I got to be good friends with Double Fine who made Psychonauts and the team there, like I started doing some, some little fill in music for this and that. And then Lee Petty, who is the, he, you know, he's the lead on Headlander. He had done a, a game called Stacking before that. And I really liked that game. And when this new game was in the works, I kind of wrote music for the, for the prototype. And I wrote music for the selling, you know, when they were trying to sell the game. And I just wrote this music for it just to try and get my foot in the door. And I ended up having to still demo against all the other composers in the industry, like the usual names that you'd hear. And uh, I still managed to make it through. And that was just that's the most fun I've ever had on a project. No doubt. And it sounds like you're sort of, that was a real moment of success for you. Yeah, it was fantastic because it's all me. I didn't share the, the credit with anybody. And what was, was that particular game? Is that a, a specific one? Headlander. Oh, that's Headlander. Okay, great. So what's, and, what's really entertaining for me too is, is I know, I mean, I, was, I also had a 2600. I've got a PlayStation 3 sitting up in my house. Tell. You know, but but I don't know all this stuff that you're going through. So it's really fascinating to me to have this inside view of what it means to do games. And you talk about like FMOD and Wise is the sort of the game DAW that interacts. Are there is there like a whole industry of people now who really just know FMOD and Wise and they don't have to know logic? Or do you feel like that's a tool yeah. that you just adapt to know as well? Well, the thing is, it's more of an arrangement tool. You can't actually do content creation within it. So you still need to use Logic and Pro Tools to actually create the content. What this thing does is it just organizes the content and takes the rules of the game and plays things back in a really interesting way. Now, when it comes to specialists, that's a very interesting question because what used to happen in game companies is that they had a team of people that would develop the audio engine. And every audio team had a different audio engine. Like Sony would have theirs called Scream. You'd have LucasArts, which had theirs. You'd have Microsoft. Everybody had their own game engine. And what these programs sought to do was to create a middleware solution that would standardize the tools in such a way that it just, like when you have a company where all they're doing is focusing on that integration of audio and music into a gaming world, the possibility for integration and the, and the ability to do things quickly and easily, it just rules. And you find that these audio companies that had their own engines are now adopting this middleware instead. Like yeah. Blizzard uses basically kind of a, for the World of Warcraft and all that stuff, they use a sort of <laughs> ripped apart and put back together version of FMOD. You've got Microsoft is using Wise. You've got... Uh, and you've got some holdouts, like you got Valve, which still, they code everything from scratch. That's mm. just their philosophy. And it's interesting because audio in games is still kind of the Wild West. I mean, they're just starting to get standardized. And that's what makes things really excited, too, is there's, it's not, the framework hasn't completely congealed yet. And there's a lot of experimentation still going on and a lot of people coming up with interesting creative solutions to take care of these things in games that, that are, you know, particular to games. Well, it's fascinating to me. And um, I, th I imagine you and I are pretty close to the same age. However, I may be older, but 
one of the things that's a real struggle for me is despite my love for games, I get dizzy so quickly and it has and have for years that I can't play all these games that I used to love to play anymore unless it's like really two dimensional and and not, you know, a 3D screen. Can you still go play games and do you still play them a lot? Oh yeah. I mean, the funny thing about me is is that I get like maybe an hour a night to do it. But what <laughs> so like if I play something that's like Portal or Portal 2 or something that's really story driven, you know, like it's got really good game mechanics and everything, but it's really about story. It's really hard for me to put the game down because I'm a completionist. And I also I have that thing where you get past the level and you're like, I achieved something. I achieved something tangible. I made it past this level. And so you just I just screw I'll just, bedtime. <laughs> Dude, I just keep playing and then I'll see the sun come up and I'm like, I'm dead because I have to work all day. But um, what's also kind of a problem with me is that I may take a game and latch onto it. And um, if the game's big enough and has enough going on, like say Fallout 4, Fallout 4, I mean, my PS4 just turned into like a Fallout 4 machine for like months. <laughs> and so then I put that down and I played a bunch of games in succession. Like there's a lot of really cool indie games that I was looking forward to playing to listen to them like uh, Inside by Playdead and, um, you know, a couple of these uh, Ori in the Blind Forest and this other stuff. And then I got Overwatch and then it became an Overwatch machine for the past like three months. It's really sad. I love it, man. Let's um, I'll, I'll collect a list of names of games that have the best sound and music in them. And we'll include that. I'll make sure that gets to the rock stars through the show notes as well. Oh, yeah, um, because that that would be really insightful. I, I love it when I do see a game and I'm like, wow, the production level on this is incredible. The music music has been known to make the difference between a you know a film that is sort of lacking in emotion and a film that is really has a lot of emotion. And mm-hmm. I imagine it's the exact same thing for games. I mean, it really it brings the emotional experience in. But let me ask you some questions about that. So like, for example, if somebody was thinking, geez, I want to get into the gaming music industry, what are some tips you have for them as far as some first places to start? You know, as with anything that's related to creative enterprises, networking is everything. And if you're going to get into games, you have to go to GDC. GDC is the game developer conference that happens in San Francisco once a year. It's really important to start showing your face there and start to and get to know the other personalities within the gaming world. It's a slog for the first couple of years, but then once people realize that you're sticking around, you'll start building those relationships and you start to meet audio directors. And really the key is meeting these audio directors, meeting these people that are in charge of making the decisions for putting music in a game. I also think that people should play apps on their iPhone and iPad or whatever device, Android, find the apps that they love the most and then contact those companies directly and say, hey, you know, I'm doing, you know, I'm an audio guy. I really want to get into games. I would love to do some work with you. And what's neat now is that there have been some deals where people get back end on games where they say, you know, I'll take less cash up front, but I'll get a percentage on the game sales. And with apps, sometimes that works out really well um, mm. if, they're, if they're a good company. You know, interesting thing about apps is because my daughter will play a lot of app games, um, you know, at different times and I'm driving in the car, I get to just hear the audio from the game. And it's pretty amazing. I remember uh, Plants vs. Zombies was one. I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. Oh, it's a fantastic game. PopCap, those guys are awesome. 
Yeah, it's an awesome audio team there. All right, so let me ask you this question. You described, you know, going to the conference and then meeting people. And then when you come back and you're composing, is game music and composing something, is it a very sort of like lonely profession where you're by yourself in the studio a lot? Is there much interaction between people when you're, you know, if you're working that way all the time? How does that work? It varies wildly. I mean, if you're a freelance guy like I am, sometimes you're what I call an asset cannon. You're just shooting assets over the wall and they... (laughs) You have a spreadsheet, you're just fulfilling your spreadsheet and you send this stuff over and you're like, is it good? They're like, yeah, it's good. And then sometimes you get to be very interactive. Like on Headlander, I was able to work closely with the audio director, Camden Stoddard, and we came up with this aesthetic and this, we really thought hard about the aesthetic of the game and the timbre of the game. And since he's, you know, we're both recording engineers, we're both producers, we both have multiple sort of facets to our understanding of audio. And we were able to work just really closely together in in having the sound design and the music be one cohesive thing. And I think one thing that's very important for a composer to know and do is if they're working on a game, they should take the programmer out to lunch and they should take the audio director out to lunch. They should take they should really try and get as embedded with the team as possible and not be so isolated because Building that relationship, A, it's good for you in the future when you want to work with them again. And then B, you get to understand what's possible. You know, I I had a very um, interesting lunch. I had a very interesting time working on a game that I can't say specifically about. But we walked in and I had all of these ideas for implementation where like, yeah, we're going to have this music playing. And when somebody comes in the room, we're going to have this distance parameter where the far, if, if they're far away, then the music won't kick in, but then we'll have something come on and we'll have um, these concurrent themes playing and all this stuff. The programmer's looking at me and his eyes are getting really wide. And um, I look at him and I said, you seem kind of freaked out, man. And he's like, listen, I'm going to show you something. And we walk over and he's playing the game and the character walks in the room and he just spins the character around twice and the music stops playing. And he goes, I need to figure out why the music stops playing when you spin the character around. All of this other stuff that you're talking about sounds really cool, but we got to get the basics in place first. And we need to, you know, let me show you what we have and what's what we're going to be able to do. And uh, it was through that experience of talking with the programmer and being really close with the programmer that we were able to build this you know, we were able to build this audio system that could do some interesting things without, you know, breaking the programmer, you know? Yeah, no, that's interesting because it's something that I've learned by doing records with people in the studio. It's something that is a lesson that's taught a lot. And, you know, if you sort of are trying to learn marketing and things like that, is this difference between trying to, you know, when you're interacting with people in networking or you're interacting with your client, the difference between sharing all these things that you're thinking could be valuable versus just stopping for a moment and listening to what somebody's needs are and addressing those first. Obviously, you needed to fix what was broken in it before you could add 10 more, you know, different styles of music playing. Precisely. And, you know, it's very important when you're a composer and you're talking to a client, when they ask you, like, well, how many minutes can you do in a day? You need to have an answer to that. Like how many minutes of music could you produce in a day? You should be able to answer that right off the top of your head. You well, say, I don't know, 12 hours, 60 minutes an hour. What's that? 600 and never mind. Yeah. Or you have some people who just go like, I don't know, you tell me. 
And that's not what they're asking. Right. They, they are, they want to plug you into a metric, you know, <laughs> like they don't want to, they don't want to do that work. They're asking you for it. That's your responsibility. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So, um, how about what, what's one of the most fun things about creating music for games for you? Oh man. I, so games come in all shapes and sizes, right? And one of the coolest things about Headlander was that I, like you and I are of a similar age. So if I said Blade Runner, you immediately have an image of your, in your head, right? That's right. And we think about Vangelis and we think about electronic music of like the late seventies and early eighties and what that sounded like, like what that world was like the Jean-Michel Jarre and all that kind of stuff. And Headlander was the first project that I ever took on where the nostalgia, like coming from my childhood, from, from what I used, what was my sandbox and what formed me as a musician was, was that music. It had a tremendous influence on me and to be able to essentially just write Headlander is just a giant love letter to all of those composers that influenced me on the electronic music side. Cool. And that was just, it was amazing. And I've actually gotten to the point where I'm going to try and start sending out vinyls to those who are still with us, you know, you know, because there's so much like Tangerine Dream influence and Vangelis and all of that. Yeah, and, risky business. Oh, man. Well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't biting them, you know. No, like, no, no. I'm just saying I remember Tangerine Dream was the, that was the soundtrack for Risky Business when. Oh, my God, you're right. When they're riding away I, on, the, on the subway and stuff. Yeah, Risky Bit. They also did the theme for Airwolf. Oh, interesting. Wow. Oh, that, but that was the video game or that no. was the film? No, the, te- the television show, Airwolf. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Bum, 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 and it totally makes sense when you go back and listen to it. But, um, you know, there's just these iconic like electronic music scores of those days that were just, yeah. So Headlander was a lot of fun that way. And then as the far as the sheer like high watermark, you know, for like the coolest experience with the game, I got asked to come in and write a couple cues for Mark Grisky. He's normally a big Star Wars guy, and he worked a lot with LucasArts on the uh, Star Wars video games and things like that. And he needed just another hand on deck for this game that he was doing called Relics of Gods. And it was this orchestral electronic hybrid score with lots of drums. And so, you know, I write this piece on on my system. I wrote a couple of cues. Um, This guy, Eric Barnett, got me involved in it. He's a guitarist and he was able to, you know, sort of help out with orchestration as well. He did it. He did a, a couple of guitar parts and things like that. And, and, um, we go up to Skywalker and there's an 80 piece orchestra up there, you know, and they had, they were doing orchestra one day and choir the next day. You've got Leslie Ann Jones behind the console. I've got Lenny Moore as my, my personal orchestrator. You know, I don't even have to conduct. They have a conductor out there. You know, we're sitting behind the console, you know, at Skywalker and Leslie Ann like turns to me and goes, did you write that? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote that. You know, Leslie, I've I've been coming up here for 10 years. This is what I do. But that was the moment where she kind of like, hmm, all right. You know, and that's like for me, that was just there's just nothing. There was just nothing cooler than that because growing up on Star Wars and all of that and hearing that orchestra. I mean, hearing an orchestra playing my stuff yeah. and then more the orchestrator going, Hey, you know, you should take that, that cello solo, take that up an octave. I'm like, okay. And then it ends up just soaring, you know, this cello solo just soaring. And I knew that it was because of what, you know, Lenny had also taken my, uh, my woodwind parts and he like rearranged some of them so that they'd fit in the strings. And like, 
it was just an amazing experience. It wow. was just the coolest thing ever. It's really, it is an amazing experience when you get to work with your heroes and if they recognize you for, for doing good work, that's, that's it. You know, that's the best. Totally. All right. So a um, couple more questions and then we'll take a break and come in for the jam session. Although I think we're going to do a special jam session on this one. What's one of the biggest frustrations about creating music for games? And then let's tie this together for telling us why and how is Logic Pro X a great tool for creating games for music? I mean, music for games, excuse me. So the question right now is what's the most frustrating thing? Yeah. About writing music for games. Yeah. Well, when I was talking earlier about some of the limitations that can be placed on you because you're, you're dealing with the limitations of the engine and, and the, uh, you know, what, what is possible within the, any particular game engine that you have to be a part of, that depending on who you work with, that completely determines what you're going to be able to do. And one of the hardest things to do when you're, when you're composing music for games is if they give you only a minute and a half for a piece of music and that music is going to loop over and over and over and over again, you have to write a really interesting piece of music that loops well, that doesn't have any kind of melodic element that sticks out because people hear it over and over and over again. You probably have to not write it in 4-4 just so that it, you know, it doesn't get too you know, repetitive you might have to play with tempo a bit. You might have to, you know, it's like all of that decision-making that's based around something that's going to loop. Hmm. That really frustrating because it's one thing to have, you know, if a person's in a level and it only takes them, you know, three minutes to get through that level, then a minute and a half loop isn't so bad. But if they're hanging out in that level for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, then things start to get really redundant and, people will turn off the music. Like, Interesting. Yeah, you don't want them to do that. <laughs> no, you don't want to piss people off. One of my favorite quotes is, do no annoying. Well, I like that. It sounds like Yoda. Yeah, exactly. And um, Annoy not. Yeah, exactly. Do not annoy. And um, that comes from Marty O'Donnell, uh, Bungie fame, uh, did the Halo stuff. And uh, I saw I saw this lecture that he was doing and he said, do no annoying. And I'm like, you know what? That's exactly right. Do no annoying. You know, it's interesting because I think of that as a takeaway for tracking and producing in the studio and then also for mixing and then also for mastering, really. So one of the things that I noticed about getting better at recording in the studio was I learned how to remove the suck. So whatever is <laughs> sucking right now, just address right. that. You know, if there's a yep. buzz in the bass and it sucks, go address that and then get to recording. If there's something that's a musical bit in the production and the arrangement and it's just sucking and messing up the song or messing up the vocals, go address that and and you know start editing and deleting things when you're mixing, when there's a frequency uh, that's just killing you. Or if you think about EQ, like subtracting first is better than trying to add. You know, like right. trying to subtract out the suck before you start trying to add things back in is usually better. And then you if know? you're mastering, good luck because you're the last chain. You're the last link in the chain. And if it yeah. still sucks after you're done, um, Boy, you know, you may get you may get all the credit. I'll even if it's you, not your fault. But, well, one of the things that is so frustrating as when you're mixing, you know, when people contact you and they're like, can you mix my song? And then you get the song 
and the recording quality is just like all over the place, you know, like, or the sessions just not organized or, I mean, I did a mix on this one guy, uh, this one guy's music and I realized I'm like, man, those overheads sound really strange. And I'm like, Oh crap. That's like the same overhead. It's like the left overhead got copied to the other track and he was trying to pan it. Right. Went through and did, I did like a phase flip and I'm like, that's the exact same audio. So I had to go hunting for the right overhead, you know, and then I pop that in and it's like, Oh, okay. There's my stereo image finally. Jeez. Or you get, you know, you get a bass that's like all sub, you know, yeah, pre-processing on it. You know, the measure twice cut once that comes from doing, you know, construction mm-hmm. uh, really works well when it comes to recording. Like when people are, are capturing audio, you know, there's a reason why we spend so long sitting there trying to get the right drum tone and, you know, get the right bass tone and everything before we even hit record, you know? Yeah, indeed. I actually have that book, Measured Twice, Cut Once. Oh, there's a book? Yes, yeah, a book. Somebody gave it to me once. I, huh. I Sadly, I don't think I read the whole thing. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still cutting, man. Sorry, guys. Well, so... It, it, that's that's great stuff, man. I like that quote a lot. Do no annoying. Um, I think we could definitely take that one straight to the Grammys, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. But um, let's take a break, and Rockstars uh, will come back in just a moment for the jam session with our guest, David Earl, a.k.a. SF Logic Ninja. And a reminder, one of the things that David is really, really great at is Logic Pro X. This guy knows it better than anybody I've ever seen. So I'm going to do a special jam session in here just in a moment where we're going to ask some specific questions about Logic, and we'll really dig into that next. So stay tuned. We'll see you in just a moment for the jam session. You can find links in the show notes to everything we're talking about. Go check that out. I'm actually going to make a special link right there for you, rsrockstars.com slash sflogicninja. And I'll put in a great resource there where I collect all his best videos and most popular videos, assemble them into one place so you can check it all out. We'll also, um, I don't know, you think we got any good key commands or anything like that we could throw in there? Just fun, fun, quick keys and things like that for Logic? Oh, certainly. Okay, cool. We'll put that in there, Rockstars. And then you never know, you just might find a secret Easter egg special code to get some really cool stuff. So check that out. We'll see you in a minute for the jam session. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299, or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Are you having trouble getting your mixes to sound professional? Are you mixing and mastering yourself? Did you know that the vast majority of the world's best mix engineers almost never master their own mixes? 
So if you're thinking about hiring a professional mastering engineer, check out Chris Graham Mastering. Chris is a billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer who has mastered thousands of songs for both professional and home studio clients just like you. Send one of your songs to Chris and he'll master a sample of your song for free. If you decide to hire him, you can also get a free video mix consultation before mastering to help you get the most out of your mix. To learn more, check out chrisgrammastering.com or just click the link in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, we're back. We're going to jump into the jam session. My guest today is David Earl, a.k.a. SF Logic Ninja, joining us for how to compose music for games in Logic like a true ninja. David, are you ready to jam? Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. So, Rockstars, we're going to do a little little different this time. We're going to start out with some specific Logic questions, and then we'll kind of hit some of our usual jam session questions after that. David, tell us... Why should the Rockstars be using Logic Pro X or Logic? Because there's no reason not to. And and here's the other thing. Make sure to call it Logic 10. Like Logic the Apple 10. guy. Yeah, because X, like when they came out with Final Cut X and everybody called it X, like they're trying to distance themselves from that. So Logic Okay. 10. Logic 10. Logic 10. Thank Logic you. 10. So why should people? Well, there's really no reason not to. And what a lot of people, the misconception that people have with Logic is that Pro Tools is the audio editing program and Logic is like the composition program. And really, I've, I've pretty much tackled every workflow between the applications. And I can say that they're really, you can do whatever you want in either application. But I think Logic for the price point, I mean, $200 is nothing. It, you is, know? it is pretty amazing. Hey, and how about no subscription? That's pretty nice, right? Yes, and you can. How about the fact that if you buy it in the Apple Store, you can install it on. You know, if you got two or three computers, I think you can just put it on all of them. Yeah. How about all the plugins and the instruments? I mean, there's really no argument. I mean, it's just it's a tremendous system, and if you find the right places to learn about how to use it, you know, I mean, one thing that was really interesting is that Pandora hired me as a consultant to go over and talk to these guys who were doing editing because they went with Logic as their tool. And a lot of those guys coming in to do audio editing were Pro Tools guys. And so it was wonderful. I had a captive audience of Pro Tools guys who had to, who had to retain the information. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. You, you would never have guessed, but you have the very same thing right here on the podcast. Uh, Number one DAW used on this podcast for our rock stars is Pro Tools. Number two, Logic Pro 10. Mm-hmm. And I'm thrilled to have you here so that we can start dispelling any myths and sure. bringing people over because I've always been fascinated with logic. I got it. I love it. It's super cool. But every time I go to use it, I feel like I'm, I just don't know enough about how to use it effectively compared to the, the depth of yeah. knowledge I have in Pro Tools. It's a different workflow. And the thing is, Pro Tools, when you've used it for God knows how long, I mean, it's, you know, it's such a different world. They're just two different worlds. Well, it's good that this is a game theme on this podcast as well, because I always draw the analogy between learning how to play a video game and it becomes your favorite and you're playing it at your place. And then you go over to your, your friend's house and he's got a totally different video game and you can never get really off the ground easily because you just, the controller is all different, you know? Yeah, well, it's kind of like if you played Dishonored on PS4 and then went to your friend's house and played Dishonored on an Xbox One. Exactly. You know, I was like, going to use that same analogy. Not really, but go for it's it. Totally, it's totally the same. I mean, it's like all of the stuff is there. There may be slight differences, but for the most part, you know, I mean, 
it kind of, you can kind of use whatever you want. You could use live, you could use pro tools, you could use logic, you know, and you could, you can get the job done. We can start getting into the weeds with like summing engines and all that sort of thing, but we don't need to because professional stuff is written on all of these DAWs. The thing about logics, I just feel that there's so many guys who like, they want an alternative to pro tools. And when it comes to logic, they just don't, I don't know. It just doesn't, it, they don't see it as a possibility. And it's been really fun for me to go around to people that are having those, those issues with pro tools and go like, okay, well just, just without emotion, like I'm not doing a, there's nothing I hate more than the Mac versus PC or the like pro tools versus logic or whatever. It's like, I, I'm never going to say like, Oh, logic is the better doll. It, it, it it's, it's just kind of shallow. Well, let me uh, let me ask what I think maybe are some a tough question anyway. The sure. one roadblock I keep running into is hearing people suggest that Pro Tools is best for editing and Logic, like you said, is is great for composition. I think the obvious reason why it's easy to call it great for composition is because well, you have so many great you know plugins and instruments and composing tools just ready and waiting for you. But help us dispel this myth that you can't edit in Logic. Well, the advent of the marquee tool, like a lot of people, the marquee tool, when it came out, I think it was Logic 9 that it came out, and a lot of people didn't know about it. And they didn't realize that you could do all your tab to transient using it. You can do all your, you know, extracting regions and muting parts and doing selection-based processing. Like, all of that stuff is in there now, and a lot of people just don't know. It's like, if you're a Pro Tools guy, why the heck would you go and read every update that came out for Logic 10 in the past two years? Sure, you know? sure. And so most most of the time, that's what's going on. Well, let's see. I was going to ask you, well, I'm sort of thinking forward, so I apologize if I'm interrupting. I'm really just trying to think ahead. (laughs) But one of the things that I know how to do in Pro Tools that I don't know how to do in Logic is I don't know how to be zoomed in and kind of quickly get to somewhere else, like the other end of of a big region. I don't know how to confidently select everything from this point to the beginning of a session or from this point to the end of the session without zooming way out and doing stuff. Do you have any cool editing or navigational features like that 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 you can tell sure. us about? So first of all, when you're using any of these DAWs, you should use a pro keyboard. Don't use the little, you know, Bluetooth keyboard. Use a pro keyboard because it gives you more opportunities for key commands. Okay, like, tell, tell us what a pro keyboard is. So a pro keyboard has a numeric keypad. It has arrow keys underneath a home end page up, page down, and delete button, and a full set of function buttons. The reason why is that some of those navigational commands that you were just talking about are so much easier when you have a pro keyboard. First, when you have a pro keyboard, the numeric keypad is then your marker selector. So anything you hit on the the keypad, if you hit five, you get a marker five. If you get a one, you get a marker one. You can drop markers by hitting option apostrophe. Okay. Now, when you're on a region, let's say you want to go to the front end of the region. That's control home. If you want to go to the end of the region, it's control N. Nice. Some other good ones. Trim to playhead. It's command bracket, right? Because doesn't the bracket look a little bit like the end of a region? Right. It looks a little bit like a trim tool. Right. So if you you have your playhead somewhere and you hit command bracket, then guess what? It's going to trim either the front or the back, depending on which bracket you select. Cool, cool. All right. Um, and now you were talking about the marquee tool, and I know that you've got a great new video out about that, and I'll include that um, in this, this the link that we're doing. But um, tell us more about the uh, marquee tool as well. Well, the marquee tool is pretty great because it allows you to do, I mean, 
if you're in automation mode, it does things that are automation specific. If you're in the workspace, it has specific functions for the workspace. But all of them are pretty, uh, pretty self-explanatory once you know the basics. So the way to set up the marquee tool is as a command click tool. So those are at the top of the workspace. There's two tools that you can select. The first one's your primary tool. The second one's command click. So if you hold command, you should get a nice little marquee tool. You sweep over an area and a couple of things happen. A, there's a cycle mode in Logic, which basically is a loop area, right? Mm -hmm. It's this little yellow bit at the top that your audio always loops unless you use a marquee selection. If you do a marquee selection, then it always plays from the beginning of the marquee selection and then stops when it reaches the end of the marquee selection. Right. Let, let me interject this. That's what I discovered by accident, that if you're used to dropping a cursor and pressing play in Pro Tools, the closest thing to that is using the marquee in Logic, right? right? Yeah, because if you just click once with the marquee, like if you hold command and you just click once, then that it will play from that location. Now, always. another quick question. A lot of times I use the smart tool in Pro Tools, and if I get close to an edit point, it starts getting doing all kinds of weird stuff, and it actually gets really hard to drop the cursor and press play. Is that easier and less of a problem with the marquee tool in Logic? If you So the way the smart tools work in Logic, I'll call them smart tools just for translation purposes, there are these things that they call click zones, right? So you've got a fade tool click zone, a marquee click zone, and a quick swipe click zone. So if you're on a region, if you are below the midpoint of the region, you can just click, and that'll drop the cursor there. Yeah, nice. Are you testing it out while we talk? Yeah. I I'm love it. <laughs> so then if you're above that area... If you're above that area, it's just your selector tool. Yeah. Rockstars, this is called fact-checking in real time. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but it's kind of interesting because, and I don't use it, and I actually kind of should. That's why I brought it up because I don't, I don't usually use the click zone. But what's kind of awesome is that even if you don't have a region there, the click zone exists. Hmm. So your pointer tool, if you're above the middle of the track, it's a pointer tool. But if you go down, it creates a marquee automatically. Holy crap, and you can just swipe. Oh, my gosh. Nice. Learn something every day. Let me ask you this one too. When you're editing, a thing that's very different about Logic versus Pro Tools is, you know, in Pro Tools, you zoom in within the um, edit window where all the tracks are. In Logic, you know, you click on a region or something and it pops up in this edit window. Do you usually use the edit window? Do you kind of like use the blown up window down at the bottom and do your editing to things and then kind of close that and go back to the big arrange window, I guess you'd call it? Hardly ever. I mean, if I'm doing editing and I'm, and I'm, so first of all, if you select a region or a selection of regions and you hit Z, it zooms in on them automatically, which would be good for you to know. Mm -hmm. I do, I do all my editing in the tracks area. When you have the window that opens up below, you know, you've got MIDI editors and those are handy, but when you're using audio, then it'll open up this like audio track or this, this audio track view. One of the things that makes workflow really fast in Logic is if you need to use an editor for something like MIDI, you set it up on a screen set so that the entire screen is whatever that editor is. So in Logic, if I hit one, that's where I do all of, you know, 90% of my work. But then if I want to use, say, a piano roll or something like that, instead of having it open up at the bottom of the screen, I just hit four on my QWERTY keyboard, and it takes me to a piano roll that's the entire size of the screen. Wow. And if I hit one, it takes me back again, and I'm there to work. But when I'm doing something like audio editing, 
most of my audio editing, I, I don't do any audio editing in the editor down below. Like you can do it all in the window. You don't have to go down there. Well, that's super cool. And that's good to know. So that means that, you know, I th for me, that's one of those frustrations where I'm like, I'm trying to work the way logic wants me to work. And my brain gets disconnected. Like I lose my mental location GPS yeah. if I have to go to a new window and keep working. So that's and really cool. That's really what they were trying to do is not have it be that way with this last revision. I'm actually pulling a piece of audio in for a second just to make sure that my um, um, I've got these click zones up. That's really fun. How about groups? Can we talk about groups for a sec? Sure. I'm used to using Pro Tools. I'm used to selecting some tracks, grouping it, having playlists, things like that. Um, sure. How are those different in Logic? How are they similar or better or worse? Well, Logic just came up with track alternatives in like Logic 10.3.1, I think. So now the track alternatives are essentially your playlist. If you want to work in a playlist workflow that's now available in Logic, if you uh, want groups, it's super simple. You just open up the mixer, you select whichever tracks you want in a group, and then you group them. And that group has settings where you can have it follow automation. You can do um, sample accurate, you know, uh, phase locked edits, you know, so that if you're editing a drum kit, you know, nothing will go out of phase. If you do an edit, it makes sure yeah. that it happens across all of them the right way. Those groups are fairly easy to set up and, you know, you, your groups now show up in the inspector on the left-hand side of the screen. One thing that I think is fantastic about Logic, and I think anybody who records should check it out, is the take folders. Because when you use a take folder and you're doing a comp, a lot of people show like a vocalist, right? They have a vocalist go in, they sing... You know, you have it in loop and then they sing five times and then you go and you swipe over the parts that you want and it makes, it makes a composite right then. There's no jumping between track alternatives or playlists or anything. It's all right there. Oh, that's cool. So it's the swiping of the selecting across these different takes in the folder that creates the composite track? Exactly. So you have the composite at the top, which is where the actual region is sitting on the track. But when you open it up, you see all of the takes in there and you just swipe over the transients that you want to keep and the comp is automatically created at the top. And then you can duplicate that comp and make another version if you want. And you just go back down and you just swipe over the bits that you want to keep. And then you can copy that region over to another location and, and it's the entire folder of takes. And you can make another comp or, or you copy it to another track and use another one of those takes as like a double or something. Oh, wow. So if you copy a little segment, a line, a vocal line, and paste it somewhere else, it's going to paste it along with all the different yep. takes that, that are in sync with it. You know, if you copied from the second verse to the first verse, it's going to have all the second verse alternative takes there as well? That's correct. That's pretty hip. Would it also keep the alternative first takes? Are you able to choose between the two? Absolutely. Takes are numbers and comps are letters. So you have this folder that has all your takes in it. And then those takes are take one, two, three, four, five, six. And then your comp, like when you start swiping over the stuff, it automatically makes comp A. And then if you duplicate it, it makes comp B. Comp C's comp very D. Very cool, very cool. All right, yeah. so uh, anything else about that? Or can I ask another question? Yeah, we can move on. But that one is a biggie. <laughs> because That's a biggie. Now, people, <laughs> well, let me give you one more example. A drum set. So you have a drum set that you've grouped, right? So you have this group where everything within the drum set, when you do automation, it all automates together. If you do slicing, it all does phase-locked cutting and editing and all that stuff. 
Now, let's say that you record that drum set 10 times. You'll have a take folder for each one of the drums. And if you swipe over one transient in the kick drum, it selects it across all of the other takes correctly. Wow. Yep. That's super cool. Doesn't it also do folders? Is that what you're saying? So like you don't have to see all the multi-tracks laid out on the screen. You could just do just sort of. Well, now we have folder tracks and track stacks, which are basically, they kind of, we still do have folders, which are kind of a cool way to work. But the folder tracks and the summing stacks, what they call track stacks now, basically you get this one track that has a disclosure triangle. When you click on it, it shows you all of the tracks within that disclosure triangle. Mm. So if working on a drum set, you know, I'll have like my entire drum set will now fit onto one track because of this track stack that I'm using. Oh, dude, I love that. And so you could edit by just looking at one track and maybe you, does it actually visually show you the different elements that make up that? So do you, do you see the kick in there and the snare and the, and the uh, waveform or anything like that? Well, when you when you collapse the track stack, it, it's it gives you kind of a rough idea of where stuff is sitting. But then you open it when you want to do, you know, when you want to get in there and start doing some serious, serious editing. Super cool. So, David, tell the rock stars, give us like a bit of an introduction, because I know Logic has a ton of free stuff that comes with it. And that's one of the things that's really special about it. But yeah. give us a little bit of a tour of the plugins and the instruments that you're going to start out with if you decide to get Logic and start recording with it? Well, the plugins are pretty ridiculous. I mean, they they offer you an impulse response convolution reverb. They've got a really good delay-based reverb called Platinum Verb, and they've got Silver Verb, which is kind of similar to what like an EMT-250 would be. It's got a similar kind of sound, and that's just the reverb. So when it comes to dynamics, of course, you've got a compressor, which not only has the compressor that used to come with Logic called the Platinum version, but they also have something called Studio VCA, Studio FET, Classic VCA, Vintage VCA, Vintage FET, and Opto that's all built into the same compressor. You flip between these different circuit settings, and it's response curves. You know, it's not it's not a totally modeled plug-in to be an exact replica of an 1176 or a DBX160 or something, but it's darn close. You get a lot of great stuff out of it. And they sound really cool. They are really good. It's just very clean, very well done. And you'll note that as you jump through the different circuit types, that they have a GUI that that kind of tells you what it's trying to be. Like one really kind of looks like a red brushed aluminum surface, which tells you focus, right? right. Or, you know, you know, the uh, the Studio FET and the Vintage FET really kind of look like an 1176. So they're strongly hinting towards those. Yeah. The EQ that you get with it, I mean, first of all, it comes with a really good channel EQ. And it also has linear phase EQ, which, you know, I'm, I've never been a huge proponent of linear phase EQ. I kind of prefer instead of, um, you know, finite impulse response, infinite impulse response EQ. So, um the channel EQ is really pretty fantastic. And if you open the disclosure triangle at the bottom, a lot of people don't know this, but you can turn on the oversampling, doubles the sample rate of the EQ. So awfully nice. Very cool. Uh, and one of the things that's really neat that they've just started doing is incorporating mid and side processing. So you can actually nice. choose mid or side and if you choose, there's this new mode that they have in Logic called dual mono. And that will allow you in one EQ, 
you'll have either a left and a right, or if you choose the little gear, you can change it from stereo to mid-side. Nice. And that's actually applicable to their compressors and a lot of other plugins as well. Now, just to, just as an aside, one of the things I saw in one of your videos was taking like a, um, a modulator plugin and having it control those EQ frequency points. So you had them like sweeping around on the screen and stuff and creating special effects of your own. That's right. And that yeah. would probably be really cool to, you know, create special effects on the sides, but not on the mid and things like that. Precisely. And um, the only thing about that is that you need to have a MIDI effect plugin. But I think that you can go across channels with that. That's all right. We don't have to get too deep into it, but just knowing that this stuff is possible. Yeah. Um, what about things like saturation, tape emulation, you know, guitar cabinets and emulators? Amp designer, bass designer, pedal board, fantastic collection of amps, fantastic collection of bass amps. And it's neat because like if you go to the bass amp designer, it's got DI as well as the cabinet with the head. You can choose no head. It's got a um, kind of an SWR versus Ampeg versus flip top, which is, or using just a DI. You can choose what mic you want, whether you want an RE20 or, or an 87 <laughs> or 421 on it. If you really don't want to get down to the business of making music, you could just keep choosing all day long. Love it. Yeah, it's fun. So anyway, and as far as saturation is concerned, I really love their overdrive and distortion plugins. Like overdrive, I use on a lot of stuff just to get a little extra harmonic content you can make it sound very clean but just suddenly something's just a little bigger yeah uh, really really cool stuff um clip distortion is very much like a, a valve distortion type thing that comes with it very very cool stuff one of the secrets to a tape kind of sound is to open up their tape delay and you turn the delay all the way down so that there's no delay it's zero millisecond delay wow but, it's cool but you get the tape emulation and you can choose between clean and diffuse for your tape head mode. Very cool. Well, now I know you're running short on time, but um, anything you want to tell us about the instruments? There's sort of a stunning amount of instrument possibilities built in as well, right? Right. So Logic has always had a great, you know, the sampler is getting a little long in the tooth, but it's still very, very clean, very good. Vocoder, it's got a lot of really good sort of basic analog subtractive synths. It's got a nice little FM synth. Then they have a B3 organ emulation that's amazing. It's, it's kind of ridiculous how good it is. Um, wow. have a clav, which is modeled. It's based off of the Carpless song physical modeling algorithm. You know, that kind of a, you know, this, this physical modeling algorithm, it gives you a lot of really interesting possibilities with the clav. They've got a nice model of electric piano. But then when you get into drum kit designer, like drum kit designer is sick. They have like, you can choose your Versalite kit versus your Ludwig Beatles type kit versus your, you know, Yamaha studio kit. Like all of that stuff's in there. It's like having BFD or like superior drummer built into logic. Wow. And, and then if you wanted to, can you just scour the internet and find MIDI grooves and just import them right in if you want different sure. grooves? But the other thing too is, is using drummer. Logic's drummer is phenomenal. They picked these amazing drummers, came in, recorded their entire repertoire, and they have this AI unit that's driving this thing. And it's like hiring a drummer. You tell <laughs> it to play, you tell it what part of the song it is, 
And then it can follow other things. Like if you have a baseline, it's not just quantizing itself to the baseline. It intelligently looks at what the bass is playing and fits the kick and snare to match what the bass player is doing. Holy crap. That's amazing. And then, I mean, you know, alchemy. So a little while back, Apple bought Camel Audio. And if you know Camel Audio, you know that they have amazing saturation. They have amazing filters. They have incredible sound sculpting capabilities. And they have this amazing synth called Alchemy. And Alchemy basically does everything. Sampling, subtractive, additive, spectral shaping, granular synthesis, all of that's built into it. And Apple, of course, being Apple, they're like, hey, you know, to do granular synthesis, just drag an audio file onto one of the sources and it'll automatically turn it into a granular synthesis, you know, source. Wow. Uh, you can open up entire EXS24 instruments in a single source in Alchemy. Um, so wait, let me see if I understood that right. Are you saying if I played a guitar and it had a tone to it, I can drag that onto this Alchemy and it turns that into a modeled synth sound? It basically will take your guitar and depending on what synth engine you're using within Alchemy, it'll either do an additive resynthesis of the guitar, it'll do a spectral reshaping of the guitar, it'll do granular, or it will do sampling. Meaning it tries, it creates like a playable on the keyboard version of that guitar tone? Right. Like one example is it could do like additive resynthesis is literally it's taking sine waves and getting like 600 sine waves together to, to recreate the sound of the guitar. Holy crap. Well, David, we're going to have to have you back on Recording Studio Rockstars, man. We got more to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I got a boogie though. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, dude. It's, it's like, a, I mean, I feel like I got to interview a superhero today, so... Really uh, awesome for you to be here. And I apologize for our scheduling screw up yesterday, too. Totally fine. I totally understand. Um, let our listeners, let the rock stars know how they can find you and learn more about you. Go on to www.davidroproductions.com or you can hit me up on Facebook. Awesome. And then Rockstars, I want to remind you that we've created a special link for you at rsrockstars.com slash ninja. And we're going to have videos, key commands, possible codes, best practices, whatever we can put together for you there. Just go get that, and that'll be an awesome resource. David, we'll see you around the studio. Thanks so much for hanging with us till the very last moment, and we look forward to seeing you again. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers, man. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.